Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 98 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, believe it or not, it's already Cable Day again. And uh, thank goodness for that, because I've been really, really enjoying this book, and hopefully this one will continue that trend. Let's hop right on into it. This is Cable, volume 4, number 4. Had a November 2020 cover date. Story's called The Big Bang, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa Amaro, White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99 and went on sale September 2nd, 2020. So we're getting closer to being now, right? Slowly but surely, we're getting closer to being present day with the uh, on-sale dates. But uh, hopefully soon enough, soon enough we will be all caught up. Until then, we've got cable, so let's talk about it. Now we open with a uh, quick and dirty origin story for our trio of Galadorian or Galadarian warriors. Turns out that uh, they weren't always robots, they weren't always cyborgs. They were, in fact, human or, you know, at least made of flesh and blood. We don't want to make any assumptions here, this is a different planet. So at one point in time, they were of flesh and blood. They were political prisoners conscripted into a war, and their brains were placed into these robotic bodies with promises of being returned to their actual bodies post-war. Well, these three remained out in the galaxy trying to track down that big old sword that Cable found a couple issues back, but they couldn't find the thing. And so they entered a state of hibernation on an empty planet. You see, these these husks, these robotic shells were ancient, very, very old, and uh, needed to conserve as much power as possible, so they hibernated. Now, while they were out, Galador went boom. planet was gone. Now, their bodies were found and placed into that museum, which, again, we saw a couple issues back. Then, Cable found the blade and woke him up, and here we be. Now, if you've been reading and or listening, you'll know what we're currently up to in this book. If not, well, Cable promised the Galadorians that he'd send them back in time in order to save their planet. In order to do so, he would need his older self's cybernetic left arm, which has a time machine in it. Our man, or our boy, actually, our teen Cable here, he fetched it from Deadpool, who had grave-robbed old man Cable and had him placed inside a Lucite pool table. So yeah, here we be. Um, now, Kid Cable is chatting up Esme Cuckoo, and he knows that he's made a pretty big mistake with the promise that he's made to these uh, Space Knights. He figures it shouldn't be too tough a battle if it were to come down to that, because at worst, it'll be the two of them versus the three cyborgs. Well, not so fast, because no sooner does he say that than like a dozen more of these Galadorian warriors arrive on the scene. So if it does come to blows, it's going to be messy. Let's do a roll call. 
We've, we've already seen both of the characters here. It's Cable and Esme. Double page spread of credits, then back to comics. And uh, if, uh, you know, old man Cable being part of a Lucite pool table isn't weird enough, well, here's where it's going to get really, really weird. Now, Cable, Kid Cable, he opens up the cybernetic arm that he had stolen, right? His old man, old man Cable's left arm. And he opens a little hatch on it, and the innards of this arm look like normal cybernetics, right? He then closes the lid, and he thinks about how he might not have enough time to sabotage the thing. Because, of course, he can't send these these cyborgs back in time. And then something strange happens here. He closes his eyes for a couple of panels, looks to be in very, very deep uh, concentration. When he opens them, he also opens that little latch on the cybernetic arm... Only now the insides, while still cybernetic, of course, are also equipped with like this D-cell battery-shaped doodad with a biohazard label on it. It's a nuclear device that just that wasn't there a couple moments ago. Esme is pretty confused, and uh, <laughs> tell you what, so am I. And I will continue to be confused even after we get the explanation, which hopefully will make more sense to you guys. So. Kid Cable tells the Galadorians that they'll trigger the time machine elsewhere, somewhere less populated, and he suggests that they head out to the southwest. And so, lickety-split, they're in the barren desert. He telepathically asks Esme to plant a Krakoan gateway seed while he gets to work, you know, trying to configure this little doohickey out. He goes to prepare the time machine device while thinking about the time that he killed his older self. He wonders why his older self didn't just time jump away while... Kid Cable was hunting him, but then realizes that maybe this was all part of a grander plan. Next, we shift scenes to Old Man Cable, somewhere, somewhen, and he's installing that D-cell biohazard bomb in his his cybernetic arm. Then he time jumps away to his eventual own death, which I want to say is from one of the early issues of that extermination miniseries, which we will eventually get to. Then we get that page of Kid Cable killing Old Man Cable. Kid Cable says that the Elder should have seen this coming, to which the Old Man mutters that, yeah, I did. So, there you go. Back to the present, and young Nate is still working on the arm. The Galadarians, or Galadorians, they ask to be sent back 3,000 years. Cable hands over the arm, which they can detect has a nuclear element to it. Then it goes pop, not boom, not yet. Esme and Cable then leap into action, or they actually leap to avoid action, and make their way to the gateway. Cable yoinks his big ol' sword back, and right after they pass through to Krakoa, the time machine arm vaporizes the Space Knights. Big ol' mushroom cloud and everything. From here, the kids tumble back into Krakoa, landing in a very provocative way. And even though they're in a very opportunistic position, they're unable to pay it it off here because Emma Frost comes galloping over on horseback. Esme hops on the horse, and Emma does that thing where she points to her eyes and then it cables to let her know that she's got her eye on him. And then Emma and Esme gallop away, with Esme smiling back at our boy. From here, an info page, and it looks like the Galadorians might not be done with Cable or the Earth. Uh, We're getting some messages here from... Some, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, Galadorians who uh, knew that the Space Knight Ronins were, uh, were blowed up. So maybe we'll be revisited somewhere down the line. Next, info page. It's from the X desk. And this is like our Order of X bit for the issue. If you remember, there was a baby kidnapped. 
It's not getting a whole lot of play, but here it is, just to let us know that it's still something that's percolating. And I'm not sure when we're going to see this come up again, because next issue here of Cable is going to be X-10s. So it might be a little while before we get back to Stinger and Polly's baby being kidnapped by the cult. So we do get a little bit of an update here from the X-Desk. Not a whole lot to talk about there, just a reminder that this is, in fact, something that's going on. We go back to comics, and Nate returns home to Summer House. He's only planning to stay there for just a, you know, pit stop, because he's got to get back on task for that Order of X story, which will eventually happen. He tells Scott and Jean a bit about his most recent adventure, you know, dealing with the Space Knights, meeting Deadpool, yada, yada, yada. Scott's like, whoa, 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 you're not going anywhere just yet. We got a family dinner tonight, and even your grandfather Corsair is going to be here, so you ain't going nowhere. And Cable, you know, begrudgingly agrees to stick around to sup. And hey, even the inconvenient Alex Summers is there. No Vulcan, though, but really, who cares? We wrap up with Cyclops telling Nate not to be in such a hurry to grow up. Next episode, our 99th episode, New Mutants number 12. The next issue of Cable we discuss, like I mentioned, is X of Ten. So, uh, I don't know when we're getting back to the Order of X, but... I assume we'll get there eventually. But first, how about we talk about what we learned here today? Um, now, I'm a bit confused about some of the time-hopping aspects of the story, but that's a... Uh, maybe I'm supposed to be, or maybe I'm just an idiot. That's always a possibility. Um, overall, though, this was another great time with a character I never expected to enjoy. So a net positive uh, as my overall, to uh, put the cart before the horse, I suppose... But as the, uh, the time-hoppy elements of this story, um, I don't know, there's a lot to it. Because we've been getting these little bits and pieces with the older Cable over the past you know, several issues, or the entire volume so far. And we've been trying to figure out who or what or when this is, right? We don't know if this is an older version of Kid Cable. We don't know if this is like a time loop situation, and, and you know, I pardon me because I don't know a whole lot about this kind of thing. I know it's a it's a well a well trodden trope in comics and in science fiction and in just in fiction in general. But it's like Kid Cable here. Um, is he going to grow up to be Cable? Did Kid Cable just come back in time earlier than Cable did back in New Mutants 87? Is it the same guy is what I'm trying to ask here? Is it obvious to everyone but me that it is? We deal so much with interdimensionality, right? Um, because if I'm... Because I, I, I haven't read Extermination yet. That is coming up very, very soon. But that is all about the original five that Beast brought forward in time after AVX, who we were all led to assume were the actual same characters, right? This was Scott, Gene, it was all of all five of them before they grew into adults from our own timeline. At least that's what we were supposed to think at first, but then we found out that they were not. They were from a different dimension, if I'm remembering this right. So if that story has to do with the original five and also introduces young Cable... Does that mean that Young Cable is a alternate dimension Cable, or is it the same guy? I don't know what's going to happen here. Like, Because if it is the same guy, we have Young Cable coming, killing himself, 
knowing that he's going to live through his life just to come back in time, just to be killed by his younger self again. It's it's over and over and over again. I just don't know how that... I don't know how I feel about that. Um, though, again, I mean, this is comics. We could be told one thing now and then in two years. Everything we thought we knew, <laughs> we'll find out is wrong. So maybe we'll be visited by five or six other cables. Who knows? Maybe X-Man will get involved. Who knows? But... I, I don't understand the uh, the bit where Young Cable opens the little flap on the cybernetic arm, and there's not no nuclear device there, but then he thinks on it, and then there is one. It's as if to say he's able to somehow communicate with his older self or the older Cable in general. Because the older Cable, it's alluded to that he knew that younger Cable would have to deal with these space knights, and so had this nuclear device implanted in order to pay it off. It's a very, it's very weird, isn't it? Um, I really don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense out of it. I don't know if I'm making sense at all, to be honest with you. But uh, even though I don't 100% get it, I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was really cool. I liked the uh, the banter and just the relationship between Nate and Esme. It's this weird, uh, like, friction where you don't know if, like... Because when we, when we saw a couple issues ago that the Cuckoos were basically screwing with Cable, right? They were all there watching each other date him and just having a, having a laugh at him. But here it seems like Esme is... Uh, she might be a little smitten, just as Nate is in her. And then you add the Emma Frost not wanting him anywhere near her girls uh, into the mix, and it just makes for a really fun time. I wasn't expecting... It's weird to say, because this is a, you know, a teenage hero here, but I wasn't expecting teenagery situations. So it's just another very um, pleasant surprise coming out of this book. Uh, the ending with the uh, the Summers family dinner, um, it was cool. You know, it was pretty cool seeing them all together. Uh, the the closing line with Scott telling his boy to not be in such a rush to grow up. We can look at that uh, at a very a few different levels, right? Because I mean, Scott knew him as an old man, and uh, I don't know if he sees signs of him turning into that old man before his time. Who knows? But. Uh, I thought it was a nice scene. It's always cool to see those characters together. Uh, the art. I mean, what can I say that I haven't said several times? You know, fantastic art. Really, really beautiful stuff. Um, from landscapes to characters to, to, you know, the mushroom cloud. <laughs> Just beautiful stuff. Um, the info page with the Order of X stuff. It's weird that that seemed to be our driving force, the Order of X story. It's what got us into the mess that we're in, right? It was Nate and uh, Esme going to Philadelphia and then running afoul of the Space Knights. So that's how that mess began. And it feels like we might have lost sight of the Order of X. We got, what, like two pages of it last issue, and then we get an info page on it today. Still, though... Honestly, I'm not really looking forward to the Order of X story, so I'm okay with it being backburnered, but I do appreciate that where it is still percolating. It is still uh, bubbling away 
in the background here. We know it's still something that will have to be addressed and dealt with. So it's a good enough way to do it. It's a great use of an info page. You know I've had my issues with the info pages, so this is a really cool way to utilize a page, not waste a whole lot of time, but also remind us that, hey, that thing we talked about, it's still happening and it's still something we're going to deal with. So really no complaints about that, really no complaints about the issue at all, except for the fact that I'm a little confused about it. But that could just be me. I think that's all I got to say. Overall, really cool stuff. Beautiful book. The art is wonderful. Always going to be looking forward to Cable. Uh, Which, you know, ask any aged Chris, he would say, no. (laughs) No, I'm not looking forward to Cable. But here we are. Here we are. I'm having a grand old time with it. And I hope you you all are as well. Now, before we get out of here, how about we hop into the mailbag here? We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about one of the Christmas episodes. He's talking about Uncanny X-Men number 143. Now, I made a comment when I uh, when I covered this book that this might be the Christmas story for a lot of X-Men fans because it's it, it's got the most Christmassy cover. It's not a very Christmassy story. But it's got a very Christmassy cover. You got Kitty in the foreground, an alien behind her, a Christmas tree to the uh, to the stage left or stage whatever, behind Kitty somewhere. It's just one of those things that always makes me think of Christmas, despite the fact that the story inside isn't very Christmassy. But that's what Damien's going to be discussing today. So let's get into it. Damien says, "Merry Christmas." I listened to this episode on Christmas morning whilst peeling sprouts. Could I be any more festive? And no, I don't think it can be. I think that is peak festive, peak Christmas, <laughs> is peeling sprouts and listening to uh, Kitty Pride's Merry Chase through the mansion. Uh, Damien continues, Finally, we get to a story I have in my collection, although I only have the classic X-Men version, so I don't get those fantastic letter columns. The earliest issue of Uncanny in my collection is 150, and I only have a consecutive collection from 210. Thank God for classic X-Men. Classic X-Men was one that I totally missed out on. Um, it always seemed to be uh, just that, that one book too many growing up because I was buying as much as I could. And Classic, I was a dumb kid, you know? It didn't have the uh, it didn't have the 90s art, right? Which is so dumb. <laughs> it's really, really dumb. But I never really uh, glommed on to Classic X-Men. And... The few that I did have when I had a few extra bucks burning a hole in my pocket, they were they were just so out of sequence, right? Um, I wasn't getting a whole story. I was getting an issue, and it could be an issue from anywhere during the Claremont run. So really didn't catch on to, uh, to Classic X-Men, and by the time I started backfilling... The, you know, the bottom had dropped out in back issues over here, so I was able just to pick whatever I needed up, you know. A couple of years ago, though, I did start filling in my classic X-Men collection um, for for use during the From Claremont to Claremont project. I wanted to have a classic X-Men in there for whatever month we were covering, and uh, it's actually something that I was taking a task for um, in the feedback because I didn't do it. Uh, people said, hey, you, you said you were going to do every X book and you didn't do classic X-Men. And the reason I didn't do classic X-Men is because for folks who do listen to From Claremont to Claremont, you'll know that I have a different co-host for every segment of the show. And now I'm releasing them as segments so people don't have to worry about using up the entire, uh, you know, their phone or their device's entire storage, memory storage 
on a single episode of a program, I was going to have different hosts for different segments. And for Classic X-Men, it was going to be me and Reggie. Because uh, Reggie wanted to be a part of it. And he was, you know, really fond of the Claremont stuff. So he and I were going to do those. And uh, when when that was just not going to be a thing, I was not going to replace him on the show. So it was just omitted from the lineup. Damien continues. I don't think I ever realized that both X-Men 142 and 143 had covers by Terry Austin. Byrne really did flounder off if he wasn't willing to do the covers for the issues he had drawn. Yeah, yeah, um, as we talked about during this, uh, the letters page of this issue, yeah, this was Byrne's swan song. This is a piece of X-Men history here. This is, he and, uh, he and Austin were walking off to, uh, to greener pastures, or, or more fantastic pastures, I guess. And, uh, Claremont wrote that touching and maybe a little passive-aggressive missive at the end of that issue. And I, I couldn't imagine what the working relationship was like at this point, because from everything that I've read and all the interviews that I've seen, I mean, like the last straw, Byrne said, was that Claremont added a sound effect when Colossus was yanking a tree stump out of the ground. I mean, how much, how much anger and, and aggression do you need to have pent up to where that is what causes your your cork to pop, right? I, I could understand seeing, you know, having creative differences, but something that small, it's it's interesting the things that set you off, and uh, so I could definitely see Burn being like, yeah, I'm contracted for twenty pages, Just get someone else to do the cover, <laughs> you know. Uh, Damien continues, on to the story. Wolverine swiping claws out at Nightcrawler is a classic burn conception of Logan. In interviews, I've seen him refer to a scene he always wanted to do, where Kitty came down for breakfast and said good morning in the wrong tone of voice, and then Wolverine killed her. He always wanted him to be on the cusp of going psycho. One of the consequences of Byrne leaving is that Claremont took Wolverine in another direction, where this scene seems out of character now. Maybe it was a good thing Byrne left then, huh? <laughs> I mean... I mean, I, I get wanting Wolverine to have a bit of an edge, but, you know, he very easily could have killed Nightcrawler here. And, uh, I don't know, and I guess maybe that's just the hindsight and the uh, the Claremontian uh, take on Wolverine going forward that informs that, but... Uh, it's never not going to seem weird. And I, and I mean, even nowadays, we've seen it in uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, where Wolverine swiping claws out at the Human Torch and thing. It's like, that That seems a little a little extreme, man. You, can, you know, they don't have resurrection protocols for uh, victims of cosmic ray bombardment, right? It's, that's just a mutant thing. But, yeah, I... I I still don't like seeing Wolverine swipe. <laughs> Damien continues. I love the fact that you went and researched what Hanukkah was that year. Your thoroughness is impressive. <laughs> I don't know what made me do it. Uh, I. It's uh, my cosmic treadmill and weird comics history training, just looking for any little bit that I can add that maybe someone else wouldn't. And. Uh, when Kitty was feeling homesick and Hanukkah sick, it's like, I wonder if, if this was, you know, it was, was this one of those years where Hanukkah and Christmas kind of, kind of merge or, or kind of are concurrent? And no, no, they, it was two weeks before. <laughs> Damon continues. The Kitty Colossus missile toe scene is weird. 
I know right from the start Peter was presented as the youngest of the new X-Men. He's definitely mentioned as being 18 or 19 at one point. Unfortunately, both Cockrum and Byrne tended to make him look older, so it's weird to see him presented as a teenager. Of course, Kitty is 14, so it's inappropriate for a 19-year-old to be with her. Kitty having a crush on Colossus makes sense, but him reciprocating is creepy. Yeah. Yeah, we talked a lot about this during that uh, that episode. It's The Kitty-Colossus relationship has always been strange to me. Um, up until they were... Both adults, I suppose um, But in these younger ones I, I remember my first times reading through Like the Essential X-Men volumes And it was just like Yeah, this is weird And you get the puppy love thing with Kitty But Colossus, like Colossus almost Entertains it, you know And it's uh, a little weird A little weird there And I mean, he was blushing After the after the peck on the cheek And Nightcrawler's like, ooh what if she kissed you somewhere else? It's like, no, don't don't encourage that. That's very, very weird. <laughs> Damien continues. You coped well with the pronunciation problems in this issue. It's always odd to have to say words you've only seen written down. And this was about Lee Forrester. Lee Forrester, who has a full name of... Who in the hell knows? But uh, Damien says, I always pronounce them as Ungari or Ungari. And, uh, or Engarai. I can't even pronounce the pronunciation. That's, that's how bad I am. Uh, these are those aliens that were at the, the alien that came and fought Kitty. I think I called them a, a Nagari or a Najari. Um, Damien pronounces it Ungarai. Ungarai? <laughs> I'm sorry. And then Lee Forrester has a crazy alphabet soup of a name that's Aletuses or Aletus. Uh, Damien pronounces that Aletus. Which is probably right Rather than a lettuce, like I say um, Only Chris Claremont knows for sure Is what he says And maybe we gotta find out I, I, I have no contacts in the industry But maybe I can get Chris Claremont to, uh, to record two or three seconds of audio Just telling us how to say these damn words, right? You never know Stranger things have happened, right? Uh, Damien concludes with Overall, a great issue Which, which makes use of thought balloons really well like you, I don't understand why they become so unfashionable when they're being when they're so useful for building character. Anyway, thanks again for this palate cleansing week. Merry X lapsed. And yeah, that was one of the things that maybe I talked about a little too much. Uh, it's one of those one of those hills I, I choose to die on is the lack of thought balloons these days because they were used to great effect in this issue. We were we were actually able to get into Kitty's mind. Kitty's Thoughts while she's, you know, freaking out and being chased And uh, we got to learn so much about her reactions here Where nowadays we wouldn't get anything like that Because it's, you know, too comic booky. But uh, I want to thank you so much for checking out that episode And uh, and letting me, uh, t- letting me keep you company uh, during your Christmas uh, meal preparation That really, that tickles me in, in ways that maybe it shouldn't But uh, thank you so, so much uh, next, we're going to go with Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number 3. Andrew says, This issue felt very middle chapter. Not a whole lot happened except a fight and a talk. A fight between Psylocke and Wildchild isn't super industri- interesting, but Steven Segovia makes it look good. I really like the way he draws Psylocke. The facial expression she has and the shape of her face give her a very distinct appearance. He also uses a lot of the page space to showcase his art, which I enjoyed, even though it makes this a brisk read. The splash page of Psylocke's sci-knifing Wildchild was particularly good, as was the large panel of her snapping his neck. 
carries a lot of movement and energy. So if I'm going to be bored with the book, I'm glad I can at least enjoy looking at the art. And a lot of the credit should go to David Curiel, who's credited as the color artist. The color of this book look the colors of this book look great. Like Psylocke's purple neon bathing the panels in light, or the way Orphan Maker is a brighter, more solid color than everyone else on panel, almost like his armor is matte plastic, while the Marauder's duller greenish brown. The book is very pleasing to look at, and that's a very good point, and it's something that I neglect to mention more often than not is the art. It for me it's like the art needs to either be like something like Phil Noto or Rod Reese. Or it has to be very, very disappointing for me to really comment on it. Um, But you're right. Segovia's work here and Curiel's work on the colors. This is a very, very poppy-looking book. It's really, really a pretty book. So that's a very good point here. And it's one of those things that uh, you're echoing something that went through my mind because they dedicated an entire page of Psylocke jamming a knife into Wild Child's, you know, chin through the top of his head, you know. Usually I'd be like, we wasted a whole page on this, but here I didn't, I don't even think I mentioned that it was an entire page, which, you know, speaks to the fact that it didn't annoy me, which is a good thing, right? (laughs) Andrew continues, I'm not a fan of reusing Madeline Pryor. With her, it's just the same story over and over. And does she have a demonish magic power for for some story reason that happened in the last decade? I would imagine... That after Inferno ended 30 years ago and she died, the whole Goblin Queen thing would be over. I don't see why she'd be carrying those powers around into her subsequent revivals. How did she come back, anyway? She's only a, she's, she only became alive because of the Phoenix Force. Ugh. We're probably not supposed to be thinking about this too hard. Remember Inferno? That was cool. And I... I was racking my brain here trying not to... Trying not to just, like, find the answer, but trying to remember if I could actually make the hamster in my head run the wheel to figure out when Madeline Pryor came back. And I think she came back as part of the sisterhood of evil mutants during somewhere in the past ten years. I don't know how she came back. I don't know what the story was. But I want to say it was, like, her and, like, Lady Master, both Lady Masterminds, um... Maybe Spiral, I don't know But it was uh, it was an all-women all villain group that she was part of, I think But uh, I don't remember how she came back I don't remember how that story went I don't remember what her powers looked like and I talked a bit about uh, the use of Madeline Pryor here And how um, maybe I just related to it <laughs> a bit Because she spoke a lot about her her trouble is the fact that she shouldn't exist, but she does, and now she needs to find a reason to both exist and a way to prove she exists. And she talks about doing so um, by means of uh, inflicting pain, because as she inflicts pain, it's proof of her own existence. And I really like that angle, especially since... She is, you know, a, a nothing person or a nowhere person or however they, however they labeled it there. I really like it. Um, her powers, I don't, I don't think I ever understood them even back in Inferno, but I like the use of her here in, insofar as she's got like a, she's got an actual beef with the X-Men, you know, they 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 made a, a paradise home for all mutants except her. 
You know, she wasn't. She didn't get the invite. She didn't get the summon. And uh, it's one of those things that I when she when I read that she said that I almost wanted to like tear back through the Hoxpox books to see if they drew her walking through the uh, one of the Krakone gateways by accident, like they did with a Lady Mastermind. But uh, I like the fact that she is uh, she's hurt by this. And uses it as further proof that she doesn't exist, you know, that she's so, she's so, um, not invaluable, but so, such an afterthought that she wouldn't be, she wouldn't be thought of here, right? I really dig that use of her. As far as her powers are concerned, I haven't even given them a second thought. I'm just too enraptured with the, uh, with the struggle going on in her head to, uh, to worry about that. Uh, Andrew continues, Have I said that this book looks good? Because I ain't got much more to say about issue three. The last thing I'll mention was something I thought was neat. And that was when the Marauders cracked open Orphan Maker's suit, spilling out some sort of acid in the process. Reading this series, I kept wondering what Orphan Maker's mutant abilities were and why he'd still need to be inside that suit. So a little, so this little bit was a tantalizing morsel to some questions I had assumed I wasn't supposed to be asking. I hope this actually gets followed up on in upcoming issues and we get similar answers about Nanny and her suit. And yeah, you know, I didn't give it any thought either, uh, but I did like that scene. I thought it was a really cool uh, defensive mechanism for Orphan Maker. And it's funny, we read an issue of Generation X uh, during Christmas week that featured Nanny and the Orphan Maker, and they made a big deal about Orphan Maker's new armor. So I wonder if... I don't know a heck of a lot about really either character. So I wonder if maybe having armor is just part of his gimmick. I mean, that could be, right? I mean, they made a big deal about it there, and here we're seeing some of the uses for it, even the passive uses for it in defense of, uh, of the, you know, the gooey <laughs> insides, I guess. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, it's not as good as Cable number three, but it's still much better than most of the other books. Until Scarlet from Havoc Wolverine Meltdown returns as the other, other love of Alex's life, make mine X lapsed. And uh, I thank you for that, first of all. And uh, I agree, definitely not as not as strong as Cable number three. I I think at this point we have one more Dawn of X number three, and it's going to be X Factor. So yeah, I don't think Cable's being dethroned this time. <laughs> Have I mentioned how hard that book was to read last time? X-Factor number two? That was a toughie. But uh, thank you so, so much for writing in. And uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. If anyone out there would care to write in and chat, please feel free to do so. I'm very lonely. So please write in and and chat me up. Uh, You can find me a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Or you can send me an email at either weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or 90sxmen at gmail.com. I got access to both of them, so I just got to figure out a way to forward the emails into one, so I only have to check one. But for now, wherever you want to send it, send it. It's all good. Uh, you check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for just the X-Men stuff. Uh, you can talk to us on Facebook in our little group, 90s X-Men. And you can hear all the Chris and Reggie audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to just give another huge thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me on this fine day. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. See ya.